But before I give the message, I want to first thank this church, thank all of you for your investment in our congregation. <clears throat> uh, you may not realize this, but um, some of you, you, you give uh, a missions fund every year, and I think last year or a couple years ago it was like a lot of money, $40,000 or something. And so whoever was in charge of that, I guess the elders and Pastor Paul, they decided that they wanted to give some money to a local congregation to help them with their work, and that was us. So our little <laughs> gateway congregation in Alhambra uh, received a check for, first of all, it was $1,000. That was way too much money for an uh, honorarium for me, so I gave that to them. And then the next one came from the missions fund, and so we had $2,000. So we said, what are we going to do with this money? And so we thought, well, what we really wanted to do was upgrade a lot of our equipment because Sunday morning, if I can show you, if I can kind of, if you can imagine, we, had the power, we would have a PowerPoint that would work sometimes. <laughs> so, you know, you could sing and then no more words. Okay, so we'd, okay, wait, oh, there it is again. And then we'd sing again, something like that. So in, in the last two years, again, a year later, you, you sent another $1,000 check. And uh, we said, oh, this time we're going to get a laptop. And we're going to get a laptop with 32 gigabytes of, of RAM so it can handle the ProPresenter pro software, you know, because it was always sticking right there. So we went to go get it, and we realized, oh, that's only $600 more we need. And then they got wind of it, and they said, no, 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 we're going to send you $1,600. You buy that computer. So we have this beautiful laptop that runs flawlessly, Taco, flawless. It's ever since that day. And we have a, a Broadway-quality mic, lapel mic. So now we are like, go. I mean, we're so... <laughs> All these young people come and say, oh, this is a trendy church. And we thought, <laughs> you can thank Crossway for that. So anyway, so I thank you for that. Um, all right, today we're going to talk about the blueprint of human history. And I'm going to keep this uh, hopefully to 40 minutes because you have still the Lord's Supper afterwards. I don't want to go too long. But who is in charge of human history? This is a question that was answered 2,620 years ago. A powerful king was sleeping in his palace. Let's see if I can get this to work. Hold on just a second. Do I aim it this way? It's like this? And I go like this. Is that right? Oh, there we go. I kind of see that. Um, powerful king was sleeping in his palace just a few hundred feet from the shore of the Euphrates River in southern Iraq. He was awakened by a dream that terrified him. He saw a huge statue of a man, perhaps hundreds of feet tall, and dazzling in appearance. His head was made of pure gold. The statue's chest and arms were made of silver. The thighs were made of, of bronze. And the legs were made of iron. And his feet, the feet of the statue, were made of a mixture of iron and clay. And then suddenly, a rock fell down out of heaven onto the feet of the statue, smashing them to pieces. Alarmed at the sight, the king kept watching as the rock lifted itself up and threw itself down on the statue's iron legs. The iron crumpled under its weight and broke into thousands of tiny pieces. This granite slab continued smashing the iron until it was pulverized, just like a milling stone at first cracks the kernels of wheat and then grinds it into fine flour. The job wasn't finished. The rock began crushing the statue's bronze thighs. Then it pounded the man's silver chest and arms into powder. And finally, it attacked the head of gold, grinding it with relentless force until it too became a heap of gold dust. The king continued watching with astonishment as the statue, now turned powder, was picked up by the wind and scattered across the earth, just like the Neptune Society scatters the ashes over the ocean. 
the statue that was so majestic was now gone. Nothing had remained. All that was left was this granite slab, a piece of rock that was so dense and so perfect in shape that no human could have quarried it or carved it out. Those of you who know something about chemistry, you know that iron is stronger than granite, right? You can take an iron tool and carve a granite rock, but you can't do the opposite. This was a piece of rock that smashed the iron. So it, was, it had a much, what do you call it, a heavier molecular weight, I guess? Or something stronger, much harder at least, like diamond or something. And that's why the king said it was a rock that was a supernatural rock. It was a piece of rock so dense and so perfect in shape that no human could have quarried it or carved it out. And then all by itself, the rock began to grow. It continued growing and enlarging itself until it resembled a mountain of granite like the half dome in Yosemite. The mountain finally became so vast in size that it filled the entire horizon, and then the king awoke. Nebuchadnezzar woke up, no doubt, in a cold sweat. The dream was more like a nightmare. It wasn't the unknown parts of the dream that bothered him. It was the parts he could understand which alarmed him. Think about it. He sees a huge statue of a man so brilliant and majestic in appearance that he stood in awe of its grandeur. He would identify it as representing the greatest of humanity. But then to watch the great statue being smashed and pulverized into powder by a supernatural rock and then to see the remains of the statue carried away by the wind... It was more than he could handle or fathom. For just as the writer of Psalm 1 could describe the wicked as being chaff, which the wind drives away, so Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar, saw that in the end, the statue had no substance whatsoever. Nothing. It had no more significance than a drop in a bucket. So the king immediately called in all his advisors, his astrologers and psychics, He was desperate to know what it all meant. The gold, the silver, the bronze, but most of all, he wanted to know, who is that rock? Who is it that has such power over the great human statue? And the Hebrew prophet Daniel gave him the answer to that question in Daniel chapter 2. He said, you, O king, are the king of kings, The God of heaven has given you dominion and power. There's the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, the Assyrian kingdom at that time, 600 BC. He's given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the hair. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. Therefore, you are that head of gold. And I have a feeling that when he saw the, the statue and he saw the head, it looked just like Nebuchadnezzar. And that's why it, it, it just made his skin crawl to see the, the, the picture of himself being pulverized into powder and end up nothing. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours, Daniel said. And then third, or next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And finally, the fourth kingdom, there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. And then Daniel said, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. That's the rock, right? Nor will it be left to another people. It will, this rock will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. 
So here we have it. We have a blueprint of human history before or given to God, given to us by God himself. It's as if God told Daniel, I am going to fast forward the video of human history and let you watch it. So what do we have? Before the events ever happened, God foresaw that Nebuchadnezzar, his great empire of Babylon, here represented in the map of the Assyrian Empire, would be supplanted by Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian in 539 B.C. Daniel was still alive when this took place. You might know the book. starts out when he's like 17, 18 years old in Jerusalem. He's brought into Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And then Nebuchadnezzar dies. And then Belshazzar lives. And then Belshazzar is killed by what? Darius the Mede took over and Cyrus the Persian when they came in 539 B.C., representing the kingdom of silver. So here's the Persian Empire. It went all the way from there, all the way towards India, half of India. I was referred to as a Medo-Persian kingdom, the Medes and the Persians. They were cousins. They spoke almost the same language, Farsi and Kurdish. And even to this day, you can see. Anyone here know any of the languages back from, from like uh, Afghanistan or Iran? or Because I, I have these students at Glendale Community College that they're all Armenian and they all speak Farsi. So I always try out my Kurdish with them. But no one, <laughs> this is a different, different part of L.A. Okay. Um, I know one word, Korean chingu. I learned that word. <laughs> so don't, don't, I'm not gonna, don't tease me because I've, I've learned, I've taught Koreans English for many years. All right. Um, so then we have the third kingdom we have is Alexander. Alexander the Great came in 331 BC. He inaugurated yet an inferior kingdom of bronze. But interestingly, Daniel says, and it will take over the whole earth. And you look how big his kingdom was. Look at that. And he was only, what, 30 some years old? He was a young man. And uh, in Daniel 7, it describes him as a leopard. This kingdom was like a leopard. It just, just took over within a few years. So this became the Greek Empire in 331 B.C., the kingdom of bronze, right? The thighs of the statue. And then finally, 150 years later, the Romans would set up the vast empire of nations made up symbolically of iron and clay. And this was completed in 44 B.C. when Julius Caesar had conquered all the peoples surrounding the Mediterranean. That's what it looked like. In 44 BC, that, that's when Julius Caesar was was assassinated, and that's how big the Roman Empire was. And from that point on, it took over Europe and other places too. And then it says, Daniel said, at that time, after the fourth king takes over, at the pivotal point in history, a rock, a cornerstone, a stone rejected by the builders, but precious in the sight of God, he would enter the scene of human history. And when this king came, he would found a kingdom that would last forever. That is a picture of human history according to the scriptures. If you say, well, where's America or where's China or where's, you know, it's not in there. It didn't matter because once that king came, all the rest of history is just politicians coming up and down and up and down and kingdoms coming. It didn't matter if there were 600 years like the Ottoman kingdom or 250 years or however long America is. Or, of course, China has had dynasty after thousands of years. It doesn't matter. All the kingdoms are coming to an end and only one king will be left. You want to hear something fascinating? Well, let me show you the timeline of oh, this one. is important. Okay, so here we have it. So at 600, 605, Nebuchadnezzar took, took power. He came and conquered Jerusalem. He brought uh, Daniel there, and he gave him three years to learn their language of the Chaldeans, and then he had this dream. So that is the head of gold. That's Babylon. 539, Cyrus and Darius took over. They became silver. That, that was a silver chest. Then we have the picture of Alexander the Great, the thighs, the 331 
And then finally, all the way down there, look at that, 44 BC, Julius Caesar takes over, the Roman Empire starts, and just 40 years later, somebody was born in a stable. He didn't look much like a king, and no one thought he was a king. But those, the, the, the Magi tribe, the Manji, the Magian tribe that Herodotus says there were six tribes in the Medes, and one of them was a Magi, and they had access to Daniel's chapters. And this is what happens. This is fascinating. Uh, somebody tell me here what the Old Testament was written in originally. What was the language? The Old Testament. The New Testament was written in Greek, and it's translated into English and all the other languages. What was the Old Testament written in? Hebrew, right? It's all Hebrew. There's about 700 chapters of Hebrew, except for part of the book of Daniel. Chapter 2 through chapter 7 are not written in Hebrew. From the very beginning, if you look at a scroll of Daniel from the from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which would have been 150 BC, you can see it there. The first chapter is in Hebrew. The second chapter through the seventh is in Aramaic. And then chapter 8 through 12 is in Hebrew. So the question is, why would he do that? Why would he write a book in two languages? It's like an Oreo cookie. You know, start out in one, and then you have the little vanilla thing or whatever, the cream, and then back to Oreo cookie again. Um, that, I've, that question I have pondered for 10 years. And I, the more I studied it, the more I realized what, what it all entails. You see, if you look at, the, if you look at a picture of the sun through, um, through these telescopes that have the special filters, you'll see sunspots, right? And you know that if, if you just try to study the sun by itself, you can learn certain things about it. But if you look at the sunspots, you learn all kinds of things about the rest of the sun because the sunspots move in such a way that you can tell, oh my gosh, this big ball is, is gaseous. It's not solid. That's the first thing they learned by watching the sunspots because they weren't, they weren't turning like, the, like in Jupiter, the storm in Jupiter. They turned, they, that was very consistent, but the sunspots were not consistent because they were kind of floating around on the sun. So they realized the sun is very different from the planets from the very beginning. I mean, even 100 years ago, 200 years ago, they realized that. And in the same way, when you look at these six chapters of Daniel, you begin to understand the whole Old Testament better because it's, it, you can't help but be... Be curious, like, what is this thing doing? What is this Ar- these Aramaic verses doing here? This is not the language of God's people. Why would he allow a prophet to speak another language? And when he says, I have given my people my revelation. Well, we have this story. That one, one little hint is in the story about Jesus. Well, here's the Dead Sea Scroll. Here's one in Aramaic here. or the I don't know if it was part of Daniel. This is just a Dead Sea Scroll. I don't know which, which uh, book. It, it might have been Isaiah. It might have been Daniel. But you remember the story where Jesus is talking with this Canaanite woman? The woman is non-Jewish. We hear he withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and this Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him saying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed, and she's suffering terribly. And Jesus did not answer a word. Why? Because she was not part of the Jewish family. He was out there to reach the Jews, right? That was his priority. So his disciples came to him and said, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt down before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and feed it to the dogs. You get the point, right? The children are the children of Israel. The dogs are the Gentiles. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus said to her, woman... You have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. 
So what is happening is this. The six chapters of Daniel are written in a Gentile language. And that's telling us these are the crumbs of the Old Testament. The bread is everything else. The Jews get Isaiah. They get the book of Psalms. They get Genesis. They get Malachi. They get everything, all the rich, rich heritage of the scriptures of the revelation of God. And all the Gentiles, right, the rest of us here in America, we get six measly chapters. The crumbs, 1% of the Old Testament is ours. But in God's economy, the crumbs are actually nuggets of gold. They were enough to save this woman's daughter. And these six chapters in Daniel were enough to save all the Gentiles. Why? Because here, Daniel, it's very interesting. He has the first chapter he talks about, uh, you know, defying the king's command about the food. Remember, he was a young man and they didn't want to eat the, the food that was unclean. And so he tells this whole story in Hebrew. He doesn't want the king to read it, right? Because the king only knows Aramaic. And then he comes to chapter 2, and the first words in Aramaic are, Long live the king! <laughs> So he clearly is like, okay, now you can read this part here. And then the king goes, oh, this is, I, I see it right here. This is all about me and my dream. Yes, that's, I remember that dream. And so he shields the king from chapters 8 through 12. That's where he confesses his people's sin. He talks about Abraham and Moses and the law and the Sabbath. None of those words appears in 2 through 7. Why? Because he's ratcheting down his vocabulary to speak secularese. He's talking Aramaic now. And the interesting thing is he doesn't bring up the priesthood. He doesn't talk about Abraham. He doesn't talk about anything Jewish history. He talks about one thing that would interest the Gentiles only, Paul. You know what it is? Raw political power. That's what Gentiles are interested in. The Game of Thrones, right? Who's really in charge of history? Who, who has all the power? And so God says, okay, you like that topic? I'm going to teach you some things about me, the Most High God. And your first lesson, Nebuchadnezzar, lesson number one, Politics 101, according to heaven, is that God is in charge of the nations. And he puts up one king and disposes another as he wishes. I believe this is why God gave us these six chapters in Daniel, to show the world that he is the one in charge of history, that he will wrap it up in the end. He is the rock that fell down from heaven. As it happened, the Messiah's kingdom began around A.D. 30, right? when he died and rose again, and has grown to hundreds of millions of people today, about 2,000 years later. It is the only kingdom in the history of the world that has lasted this long. Philip Schaff, he's the premier church historian of the 19th century. He wrote these words in 1881. Okay, so imagine this. You're reading a book about church history, but it's 1881. So that was the time that my great-grandmother was born. Or my grandmother was born, I think, 18... 94, Lois was born 1924, my mom. So her mother was born, Louise was 1894. So this is before my grandma was born, 1881. And Philip Schaff says this, the central current and ultimate aim of universal history is the kingdom of God established by Jesus Christ. In other words, the church, right? The community of God, this group right here. This is what history is all about, Crossway Church. This is the grandest and most comprehensive institution in the world. It is as vast as humanity, and it is as enduring as eternity. It is no afterthought of God. It's no subsequent emendation of the plan of creation, as if he had this plan for creation, and then Adam and Eve messed it up, and now, okay, we'll have to go with plan B. But I'll never get to have that original idea that I had. No, no, no. It is no afterthought. 
It is the eternal forethought. The church is the controlling idea, the beginning, the middle, and the end of his ways and works. He knew that Adam and Eve would sin all along. He knew it from before he ever made them. And his plan was to create a church out of a sinful people and redeem them and purchase them with his own blood and have them be part of his community in heaven. Secular history, far from controlling sacred history, it's just the opposite. It's controlled by it. Secular is controlled by sacred. And secular history must directly or indirectly subserve sacred history and its ends. It can only be fully understood in the central light of Christian truth and the plan of salvation. That's the end of his quote. You see, history is controlled by the living God. That is why his son, Jesus Christ, is not only the center point of the universe, he is the center point of history. Every political movement flows according to his plan, and the drama of human history is performed according to his script. And just as this vision predicted 2,600 years ago, the rock is growing into a mountain right before our eyes. And then Philip Schauff, in another part of his book, he went on to describe the event from A.D. 30 to 1881, meaning the, the growth of the church. What happened in this kingdom? Once the rock came down, how do we see it growing? He says the foreign mission work has achieved three great conquests in these, at that time, 1,800 years, right? First, the conversion of the elect remnant of the Jews, right, in Judea, that area, and the civilized Greeks and Romans in the first three centuries, then the conversion of the barbarians of northern and western Europe, like Germany and England in the Middle Ages. And last, the combined efforts of the various churches and societies for the conversion of the savage races in America, Africa, and Australia, and the semi-civilized nations of Eastern Asia. Isn't that nice? He complimented Eastern Asia <laughs> and called them semi-civilized. But this is 1881. Okay, There were still emperors there, right, in our own time. The whole non-Christian world is now open to missionary labor, except the Mohammedan, which, was like, which will likewise be accessible at no distant day. He said, 1881, the only thing left, he could tell, was the Muslim world. And Schaff's last statement was truer than he imagined. In 1890, less than a decade later, a Hope College graduate by the name of Samuel Zweimer, you hear that name, Zweimer, felt the Lord calling him to begin a mission in Arabia. And in the ensuing 100 years, the world's 1 billion Muslims would witness the arrival of several thousand missionaries of whom Karen and I were one, one couple. Today, whether in East, Asia, in East Asia, North Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, or the native tribes of Americas, we are seeing the exponential growth of Christ's kingdom. Let me quote Jason Mandrick's 2010 book, Operation World. Does anyone see that book, Operation World? You know, showing the church status in all these nations. And I just picked a few countries, right? It has 260 countries. I just picked Korea, China, Indonesia, Afghan, and Japan. Korea, he says, from the first Protestant church planted in, does anyone know? When did the first Protestant church take place in Korea? 1884. South Korea now has possibly 50,000 Protestant congregations. South Korea. China, the staggering recent growth of the Chinese church has no parallel in history from 2.7 million evangelicals in 1975 to over 75 million in 2010. Indonesia, during the last 50 years, evangelicals have grown from 1.3 million to 13 million. We have a missionary to Indonesia that you're supporting, right? He's, they're going to speak in the fourth week this month? Yeah. 17, I mean, uh, Afghan, oh, I'm sorry, I'm showing these pictures? Oh my goodness, I'm sorry. That was the one, this was to go with the, you know what? What country? 
I don't have to say. This one was to be for China. These are Chinese, uh, celebrating Chinese New Year in Paris. These are, what do you suppose? Yes. Indonesia, yeah. And then we come to, these are not Indonesians, right? <laughs> these are Afghan children, yeah. The increase of Afghan believers is impossible to document and yet undeniable. I chose this one because, two reasons. Number one, because Afghanistan is probably one of the most unreached countries on earth and it's one of the most difficult, one of the most dangerous to be a missionary, right? And secondly, because we have a missionary from our church there. Her name is Olga. And she is now 65 years old. She was raised in Boyle Heights in a, in a dysfunctional family. She came to Christ in our church, in, our, in my former church called the Church on Brady, of which Gateway is, a, is a, a daughter church. And she came to faith, and not only came to faith, but she said, I, I think God wants me to be a missionary. She's been there 25 years. And she, is, she lives in Kabul. And whenever a bomb goes off, I text her, you know, or I, I send her an email, are you okay? Oh, it took place eight blocks away. Don't worry, Chris. Things like that, you know. <laughs> Anyway, she's, she's now here, and we're going to have a big send-off for her in June. But that's why I chose Afghan, Afghanistan. And lastly, Japan. Japan is more spiritually needy than ever. Remarkably high suicide and depression rates attest to the inward longings and the deep dissatisfaction with the status quo. The people long for refuge from earthquakes, from nuclear catastrophe, and desire rescue from rampant bullying and sexual exploitation. When I saw the sexual exploitation, I thought, what in the world? I've never heard of such a thing in Japan. And then I read some more. And maybe some of you have heard this. The Japanese words are enjo kosai. Enjo kosai. What does it mean? Tell us. Exactly. You get paid today. A girl... 14, 15 in high school will hook up with an older gentleman who has some money and says, I'll pay you and you be my little partner here. Dating for money. And I, I read about it and it was so sad because in some provinces, 15% of the high school girls are in doing this in Jokosai. It's the first step towards prostitution. Just first of all, get paid, you're pretty, now you be my girl for a while. And of course they may sleep together, whatever. It's just really sad. Um, so I want you to see, before we go on, I want you to see a video that shows in one minute and 51 seconds how the church grew from AD 30 until 2010. Let's watch.
pretty amazing, huh? In just two minutes, you see what happened in history. You saw what happened when the Muslim conquest began. It all started draining Europe, and yet God kept his remnant there. Well, what did you see at the end? What were the countries that still need a lot of help? Name some. What did you say? Yep. North Africa. Also a large part of Asia, right? You saw it there. All these Asian countries. I mean, we do have the church, and of course China, they could have put, I think, some purple in there for the last <laughs> 50 years to show that the, in, in different pockets of China, the church is growing very, very quickly. But still, the vast numbers of people that don't know the Lord or don't even hear the gospel, it's amazing. My friend, you need to realize something. You have a choice to make. You can either become a spectator in God's drama, of God's drama and cheer his great performance at a distance, or you can enlist as an actor in his theater of the nations. You can play one of the roles in the drama of redemption instead of watching it from afar. Because Jesus made it clear how to enlist. Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. He also made it clear that you would be paid extremely well. He says, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. And in Matthew, he brings up these wages again. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother, children, fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. I can tell you this much. When Karen and I left... California, what do we do? We leave the Southern California realty market, right? We didn't own a house, so you come back, they're even more expensive now. If they were out of sight back then, they're really out of sight now. We don't own a house. Fortunately, my, I guess the Lord took care... Whoops, I got this thing stuck here. Oh, well. I'll get it away in a second. Let's see, was it here? Oh, no, it won't go. For some reason, it's all right. I can see her. I'm comfortable. I'm okay. Yeah, it's all right. It's okay. Because it just it leaned back and then it clicked. So now I'm clicked back there. Yeah. Hi, Kia. Yeah. Anyway, um, we, were, we, we left here and we came back. And my uncle bought a house during that time. And it was going to be a rental. And when I came back, his renters just happened to leave. And he says, we want to rent my house. So my mom and we live together. And I pay $700 rent. And so I'm not complaining. God has provided a home in Sierra, beautiful Sierra Madre with orange trees and a view of Mount Wilson. But... The Lord says, when you, leave, when you leave your family, your mother or children or, you know, a mother and dad and, and sisters and brothers and children, you'll receive a hundred times as much. So what does he mean? He's talking about all the new people that come into your, your family and into your life because you share the gospel with them. You inherit new brothers and sisters and new dads and moms and new children. And uh, so I'll, I'll tell the story about one of my children whom I gave birth to when I was in Turkey. But in the church of Jesus Christ, the highest position of leadership is that of the elder or overseer, right? We have Paul Kim over here. I, I serve as one of the, the three pastors in our church, and, uh, and it's a very high calling to be a pastor or an elder. But in the New Testament, there is one calling that is even higher than the pastor, and that is the church planter or the missionary, the sent one, which is what the root meaning means of the word apostolos, apostle. It is a person commissioned by another to represent him in some way, it is this particular calling that I want to focus on today. The missionary is different from the pastor. A pastor is responsible for the care of God's flock. He teaches and counsels other members to help equip them in ministry and to see that they are thriving spiritually. The missionary, on the other hand, has the unique calling of starting a church and starting it in a new language, right, or a new country, a new place, entering a new geographic region or subculture, and giving birth to a brand new family of faith within that community. 
often that is hostile to the gospel. And so the challenges of these two roles are quite different. For the pastor, the main objective is to maintain and guide a church to its next stage of growth. And for these beautiful 10 years of, of, of life that Crossroads had, I saw the pictures there of the first group when Stan had his little baby girl, right? You guys had your baby, and you were just starting out in your living room in a prayer group, and now you have all these people. And seeing it, it's all documented there. You can see in the photographs what God has done. For the pastor, the main objective is to maintain and guide a church to the next stage of growth. For the missionary, the main objective is to launch and thrust a church into existence. Now, what do I mean by launch? This is Here we see a Saturn V rocket, right? The biggest rocket that we've made. The Saturn V provides an interesting illustration of these differences. Do you know how many, how many portions of the rocket have, or how many cells there are for the fuel? There's three, right? Not just one that sends it all the way to the moon. There's the one, the bottom one, the first engine, and then that drops off, right? And you have the second one, and then that drops off. You have, finally have the third one that goes all the way to the moon. To get the lunar module from liftoff to 42 miles into space required five F1 engines delivering 150 gigawatts of power, which is two and a half times the entire power generation of the state of Texas for one rocket. The kerosene fuel was used up at the rate of 15 tons per second. The second stage rocket carries the lunar module from 42 miles to 100 miles outside space. And then the third stage rocket, this little thing, just like a, a little dwarf compared to the F1 engine, it carried it 230,000 miles to the moon and back. Now, how is that possible? It's because... It's the initial thrust that takes everything, right? You've seen it on TV. It goes, you know, 10, 9, 8, and then you watch it. And it's just kind of shaking and going like this. It's going about five miles an hour, right? Well, you're lifting thousands of tons, several thousand tons of weight and thrusting it out into the, into the space. And that's what it feels like to be a missionary. When you go to a new country, the first thing I had to do is learn Turkish. Am I mad? A kid from California, I like In-N-Out Burgers. I like Beach Boys. I don't want to be here in Turkey listening to the mosque, you know, calling me at 4.30 in the morning. Allah! You know, they call for the calling to prayer. I thought I was in a, in a different planet when I was first there. It was scary. And then Turkish has no relationship to English, so it was, might as well be learning Korean because they're, <laughs> they're actually related, okay? All my Korean friend missionaries in Turkey, in six months, they had it down. They were speaking fluently. And then they turned to me and say, Chris, uh, my English is kind of weak. Could we talk Turkish, please? And so that's how we always had to talk with the other missionaries because there were so many Koreans there. <laughs> 500 of them. 500 Korean missionaries and 500 others, right? Among them Americans. Maybe 250 Americans, but man, the Koreans have taken over. So, But that's partly because they're related to the Mongolian languages from, from Turkey to Kyrgyzstan to uh, the Uyghurs of Northwest China to Mongolia to Korea to Japan. It's all one long story. Even the, the Eskimos and all the rest of the Amerind peoples, they're all related languages. So, okay, that's what it was like to be a missionary. So you see, to create initial thrust is more difficult than simply increasing the momentum of an object. To help a church grow is not the same as starting a church from scratch. And Paul, you know that because you started this church, right? But at least it was in California with English and the people, you know, it was not like going to another country, although for you, English is your second language, I know that. It is this very activity that, man, that man, marked the ministry of the New Testament apostles and evangelists. Paul makes a point of saying that he was interested in starting churches, not in maintaining them. So he says, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. 
It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Something wonderful happens when you enter the Lord's harvest. I'm saying this because some of you, I'm praying that God will call out to become involved in missions directly, cross-cultural missions. Something which is hard to explain in words. It's as if you're no longer working alone, but someone else, someone far stronger and more powerful is working through you. And when things happen, you stand baffled. This can't be coincidence. This can't be the result of just my efforts. It's as if the script of this redemption drama was written before you ever got there. So let me see. How much time do I have, Taco? Five, five, six minutes, okay. So I wanted to tell you the story about Haidar in conclusion. The man on the left there is with the white hair. He's, uh, his name is Haidar. The other man is a Turkish pastor, Haluk, that we both know. He's kind of been watching and helping Haidar after I left. But Haidar came to birth, or I gave birth to him, as it were, in my own living room. He was a man who called me on the phone one day, and he said, my, my cousin Hassan has been meeting with you in Bible studies, and you're a Christian pastor, right? I said, yes. This is in Ankara, Turkey, right? I said, yes. He said, well, my name is Haidar, and I want to come to your house, and I want to tell you my whole life story. Now, I told it to you there, a little bit of this in the, in the retreat, I think, right? But I'll give you a little bit more of an, an update, and just to summarize a little bit. He, this guy, why he came, why the Lord spoke to him, why the Lord chose him to be in the family of God, I don't know, because he's a criminal. He was a criminal, criminal. He was the worst man that I have ever met in all of Ankara. He was a drug lord, and he was a professional thief, and he said, I never worked a day in my life. He was 36 years old when he came to my living room. And he walked in, and Karen and I looked like, we could tell even by his face, he was rough. Karen didn't know if she wanted to have him back. <laughs> but we had dinner like I always do with these men, and I said, okay, let's, you, you want to study the Bible? Well, anyway, he told me about his life and what he did. He said, he would get a kilo of ecstasy in Istanbul and take different buses and avoid the police and get under Ankara and then sell it for $10,000 to the students in the universities of Ankara. And that's how he made lots of money. And so I said, okay, Haidar, if you want to study the Bible, if you want to follow Christ, this is what we do. And so we started reading together and I gave him a Bible in Turkish and he went home and he read it. He read the entire book of Genesis in one week or a couple of weeks it was. And I saw him again and he had some questions and then we went on and we we'd read through Matthew together. And this man had, I mean, something happened to him, something that I cannot describe to you. I, I did not cause this. I just gave him the Bible. I prayed for him. We talked. And he was literally stand. He was transformed. I mean, it was only a couple of months later he came down and said, um, I, oh, I remember we were going through the book of Matthew. That's what it was. And we came to the passage, turn the other cheek. And he said, Aydanabi, which is my name in Turkish, I've never done such a thing as turn the other cheek. If someone ever hit me, I would try to kill him. If they threaten me, I would beat him up. This is where I come. I'm a Kurd. This is what we do. We defend our honor. And I said, well, this is what Jesus said. If you want to be a follower of him, this is what you do. And it was just a few weeks later, and I called him on the phone one afternoon, and, and he, or he called me. He said, hey, can I come have dinner with you tonight? I said, absolutely. So I'll, I'll, we'll have dinner ready at 7 o'clock or 6.30. And so he said, okay, I'll see you. And then he didn't show up. And he, I waited, waited. He didn't show up. I didn't, well, something must have happened. So I waited. Three days went by. Finally, he called me and said, I don't know, I've been stabbed. I'm sorry I didn't make it. But could you come to my mom's house in the village? I'm, I'm here recuperating. And could you bring some betadine and some gauze? I said, well, sure. I came over there. And here he had five stab wounds in his leg, in his butt, in his back, one stab wound. And I said, what happened? And he said, well, after I got on the phone, I was going to get on the, the minibus to go over to your house. And my former drug lord friend, Ibrahim, and he calls him Ibo for short, Ibrahim, which is Abraham. 
He said he was coming up to me and he was high himself. And he said, hey, hi, Dara, help me sell these drugs. And he said, no, I'm not doing that anymore. I don't want anything to do with selling drugs. And he said, you got to help me. What do you mean you can't help me? No, I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry, Ebo, but I'm not in that business anymore. And he went up to get on the staircase of the minibus and he felt this hot singe of pain in his leg. And he goes, what? And he went one more step and then he felt another one there. And it was, looked back there and he saw Ebo with his knife stabbing his friend in his, in his leg. And he grabbed quickly his knife, because they all have knives, and he grabbed his knife to go stab him back, and then he remembered, turn the other cheek. And in a split second, he said, okay, then let him stab me again, Lord. And he stabbed him up here, up here, up here. Three more times, he fell down in the, the street. There was blood everywhere. They took him to the hospital. And in those three days, Evo has a big brother, which means that he has a, a big, uh, uh, someone he's accountable to, you know, and the big brother called Hyder and said, I heard what my brother did to you. I'm so sorry. What do you want me to do? I'll beat him up. I'll do anything. I, it's terrible what he did to you. And Hyder said, no, tell him I forgive him. He's still my brother. And I, when I heard the story and he told me that, I realized this man has changed. That No one could do that without the spirit of God working in his heart so powerfully that he instantly said, let him stab me again. And he never took revenge. And this picture was about three years ago, which was 10 years after that incident. This man, I've known him now for 13 years, almost 15. What was it? 2004 that we left Ankara, Karen? 2005? I think 2005. So what, it's been 12 years, 13 years. And Haidar, has, uh, he started for the first time, he got a job working as a farmer. Uh, 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 what is it? A, a cardiac surgeon of Ankara owned all these farmlands near his village and he needed someone to help him. So he hired Haidar and Haidar did such a good job. And he said, Chris, I worked so hard. I live in this trailer out in the fields and I, it's cold at night, but I've, I'm learning now what it's like to work. And I work 12 hour days and I'm trying to help this, this, uh, you know, the, the professor of medicine, Dr. Robinson. And Robinson, Dr. Robinson was so pleased with his work ethic and he was so reliable and he never took any money from, that was not his. That he said, I'm going to give you a full $800 a month, plus I'm going to give you a car and a tractor, and I'm going to pay for all your insurance and your, and your Social Security. So he did that for about two and a half, three years. And uh, during that time, he became actually well-to-do. He has more money than I do probably now. <laughs> and he met some Kurdish woman, a single mom in Switzerland, of all places, in Basel, Switzerland. That got, they met online, and they both realized we're people of faith, and they got married. Now they're, he's married. He's living in Switzerland now reaching out to all these drug addicts in Switzerland saying, you don't want to do this. Trust me, I've got a story to tell you. you know? And he talked to the Swiss kids and the Turkish kids. And now they want to retire in a few years and then go back to Antalya or Ankara and just open their home and, and live off their retirement because she has a retirement too and just watch the church grow. Isn't that incredible? I mean, Dr. Ramazan has heard the gospel from him. Dr. Ramazan's brother has heard the gospel from him. He shared it with all the young men in his village and five people have come to Christ, including the imam, the leader of the mosque. So the imam is a young man, 30, 32. He came back to the government and said, I can no longer be an imam. And so he quit because of this young man, of this man, Haidar. So I have grandchildren over in Turkey. So yes, uh, it's frustrating, Paul, to be a missionary because I was there 18 years on the field and I saw five or six men come to Christ, three of which are no longer serving him and only three left. And I felt like I was pushing a Saturn V rocket up after 18 years, you know, like that. Like, what have I got for this? But the Lord did not let me, my labors go in vain. Because now when I talk to him on the phone, I mean, he calls me and I call him back. And now we do, now we do Skype or we do whatever it is, uh, WhatsApp. That's what he likes. So I can talk to him on video. And there he is in the field or there he is in Basel. And here I am and we're talking for free. And, 
I met his wife and we prayed together. And, and so I'm thankful because God took the labors of those years and allowed me to see that this is part of the story that goes back to Daniel 2. God said, this rock will grow in every single place around earth. And that's what I'm challenging you today, to say, Lord, is it possible? We have three questions at the end. I'm not sure if I have these here. Oh, no, the communion's next. But I think, oh, you'll, you'll discuss the questions, right? Yeah. Anyway, um, I just want you to see one, one last thing real quick. Um, at the end of history, we have this picture. John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every tribe, every nation, every people, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to God, our God, who sits on the throne and to our Lamb. You know, when I have four daughters, as you know, and every Friday night we'd have a video night, and so every girl got to choose her video, and it was always a, a comedy, a romantic comedy. So every <laughs> five weeks, every six weeks, I got to have one guy's film one time. <laughs> I was surrounded with women. Anyway, and so one of those nights I chose Apollo 13, and I brought it home, and my daughter said, Oh, Dad, this is all about astronauts. This is not interesting. And I said, Let's just watch it. Okay, it's my turn. So we turn on Apollo 13, and uh, Bethany, my youngest one, was watching it, and she realizes they're stranded out there. They have no, hardly any power left, and she's getting anxious, and she's saying, Dad, what happens? Are they going to make it back to, to the earth? And I looked at her, and I thought, don't you know the story? But I realized, oh, that happened when I was a young child, and I remember watching TV when we were praying for those three <laughs> astronauts to come back, and it was kind of late, and we thought they weren't making it, and then suddenly it showed up on the over the ocean, the little capsule came down with a, with a parachute, you know. I think I cried even then at age 16 or whatever I was, and she didn't know the end of the story. So I said, Bethany, um, yes, they do make it back safe. And she said, oh, okay. And she sat back and watched the rest of the movie. <laughs> well, that's the picture we have of Revelation. God allowed us to see the last five minutes of the history of humanity so that we can sit back and relax. He said, it's all going to work out fine. All the trials you face, I don't care if it's cancer, if you're dying of cancer, or if you're children, you've got a grown child that doesn't love the Lord right now, and you think, oh, will they ever come back to the Lord? It doesn't matter what you're facing. We saw the last five minutes. John saw it and put it right there. So you can sit back and say, okay, God, you take charge. But I challenge you to become an actor in the theater of the nations and no longer just a spectator who gives money. Say, Lord, how can you use me for this great time? Let's pray. I thank you, God, for this time together, this wonderful church that you've raised up 10 years ago to become a formidable force here in Santa Ana in the Orange County area. Thank you for the Kims, Lord. Thank you for the elders and for the, the staff and the, and the many people who make up this beautiful church family. And I pray that, Lord, as they take this month to study and ask the question, Lord, how do you want us to become more involved in missions, that you would answer that question to very, in very specific ways to every individual. In Jesus' name, amen.